the final victory. Today we read of Jesus' final victory over sin, over all that is evil. There's a day coming when all wrongs will be righted, when everything that has been dealt with unjustly, all miscarriages of justice, all sins, all wrongs, all suffering of victims, all all that seems at times to have been swept under the carpet where those who are marginalized or oppressed don't seem to get justice. One day, all that will be put right. Justice will be done. And that will be the day when the Lord returns and he will have his final victory over all that is wrong, over all that is evil. (coughs) God so often seems to be so far away from us at a distance. We read in some parts of the Bible, especially the first few chapters, that the God walked with with mankind, that people could talk to him. But that's not our experience. We pray, certainly, but we don't find that he walks with us in a way which we can see him. We're distanced from him. We have turned away from him. It's our fault. He's still nevertheless very near to us. And one day he will return. This day he will return on the day of the Lord. Like a school teacher whose pupils want their open arms against the teacher. They don't want to be taught by the, the school teacher in front of the class. And school, the school teacher says, OK, well, I'll go out. I'll leave you to do your work. I'll come back at the end of the day and I'll mark it. So too God has left us to to live our lives without him. And one day he will come back to mark our lives. But he knows what the end will be. Like the teacher who sends a note, a message to the class. that says, listen, anybody who wants to get full marks at the end of the day, hear the answers. Let me help you. Let me do the test for you so that you can get a perfect result at the end of the day. And anybody who wants gets that result at the end of the day. Anybody who wants to be on the right side of God when he comes again is offered the opportunity to do so in the gospel. A perfect pass, a perfect righteousness that we receive now and have confidence, nothing to fear on that day. We will look forward to the day without fear we look forward to it with joy but at the same time with sadness for the fate of all who will not be reconciled who persist in in not accepting God's offer of reconciliation yet for everyone who's looking for true justice true peace a righteous joy the day that we read of in Revelation 19 to 20 especially Revelation 20 is a day that we have been looking forward to. As we start, as we adopt the title, The Final Victory from 
um, the section that Leon Morris has in his commentary. It's a, it's a very apt and natural title. We start off by looking at the Word of God who rides forth. In Revelation 19, verse 11, as John often does, he gives us a series of visions, different perspectives, different views. Then I saw, introduces a new vision, a new facet, a new angle on human history leading up to that day of the Lord. He sees a rider on a white horse, and this is undoubtedly Jesus. He describes himself as the one who is true in Revelation 3, verse 7 and 14, and is elsewhere described as the righteous one. Isaiah 96, 13. He's described here as the word of God. In verse 13, his robe is dipped in blood even before he goes out to battle. He strikes the nations with the sword of his mouth, which symbolizes that he conquers with truth and the word of God. He rules them with an iron rod, which means he's not a pushover. He won't be fooled like Joshua was fooled by the <clears throat> by the Gibeonites, who Joshua was to go into battle against. As God's judgment on people whose evil had become so bad that the Joshua and the Israelites going into the promised land, going into Canaan, they were not only receiving that as a gift from God, but they were God's means of judgment on the people whose sin had got so bad that it deserved judgment. But the Gibeonites fooled Joshua into a peace treaty There'll be no fooling Jesus. On that day, we will not be able to say anything that will make him change his mind. He will rule with an iron rod. He'll release the fierce wrath of God on all who are utterly unrepentant, who oppose him, who have done such evil. In verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there, its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. <clears throat> That's a very different image of Jesus than a lot of people have. It sort of suits us to focus not on Revelation, but to focus on the early chapters of the Gospels, Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel in particular, the Nativity scene. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Sure, he's only a harmless wee baby. He wouldn't say, boo to a goose. That's the image of Jesus we, we like. He doesn't challenge us. But yet, as humble as Jesus was to come in our shoes, to walk where we have walked, to, to experience the temptations, the, the pressures that we experience, to humbly come and be gracious to us to go like a lamb to the slaughter there is a day when he will come as the victor yes the lamb of God his robe is dipped in blood but he is coming not as a not in humility as a servant he's coming as a judge 
He came in lowliness to suffer on the cross for our sins. He will come again in glory and in power to right all wrongs. He'll come again as judge of all the earth. Flames of fire are described in verse 12. Usually that description is associated with judgment. And on that day all who are righteous will be vindicated. If we've trusted in Jesus, we've nothing to fear. But all who continue in unrighteousness will be condemned on that day. The image we have of Jesus is sometimes not what we expect. When John the Baptist had expected the Messiah to come, this was the view of the Messiah that people had back then that he would come and bring justice, that he would condemn the unrighteous, that he would restore even Israel, restore the land. And John the Baptist, he didn't have a doubt. He just had a different perception of what the, the Messiah would be. He expected the Messiah to come in judgment, but instead Jesus came with healing, with grace, with love, with forgiveness. And John the Baptist hadn't been prepared to understand that that first Christ comes in forgiveness and love and mercy and then for all those who persist in not accepting that he will come in judgment so John the Baptist was right but he was right about the second coming and about who Jesus was but he was mistaken as to what his first coming the ministry that he would have would be and sometimes when we look at Jesus we see that that's all that he is that's all that he does sure when we get to stand before God sure he's going to be a pushover he's not going to say no to anybody there is only one way that we will be accepted before God on that day and that's if we've already trusted in Jesus and he is patient with us now and he calls everyone to turn to him to receive eternal life as a gift now is the time to turn to him now is the day of salvation no one will be saved on that day that's a day for separating the sheep from the goats we read that he is king of kings and lord of lords on that day the dragon and the beast well they may have had seven and ten crowns respectively but he has many crowns his crowns, his authority he is king over all that they think they're king of they were illegitimate temporary rulers grabbing authority for themselves and all who do not bow the knee to Jesus are illegitimate rulers Only he is the true ruler. Only he is the true king of kings and lord of lords. Commentators note that to know someone's name meant that you would have some share or control over them. And the fact that no one knows the name of this writer, of the Lord Jesus, signifies that nobody has an influence on him. Nobody has his ear. Nobody can, can get him to make exceptions. 
He is supreme. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. On that day, he will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited, as we read in Isaiah 11. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. In Psalm 37, we read, The wicked draw their swords and string their bows to kill the poor and the oppressed, to slaughter those who do right. But their swords will stab their own hearts and their bows will be broken. On that day, all those who oppress the weak and the marginalized will get what's coming to them. There will be judgment. Those who are oppressed often don't find justice in the courts because it is those who are in power who usually manipulate the courts to to just give the justice that suits them. Miscarriages of justice. Ignoring the cause of the, the marginalized or the weak or the poor. But on that day, true justice will be found for everyone. We look forward to that day. We look forward to that day when justice will be done. We look forward to that day when all those who have done such evil and have been so much evil done in the world, they may have evaded the courts or even if they've gone through the courts, the punishment does not fit the crime. There's no satisfaction for those who are victims, those who are left behind. But on that day, true justice will be given. And at the same time though, as much as we will rejoice at justice being done, we have to have heavy hearts. God does not delight in the punishment of the wicked. We should not delight in people being punished for their sins. We should not delight in a sense of vindictiveness towards them. We should rather have a heart that wants to see them forgiven, a heart that wants to see them turn to God and receive his mercy. Sin needs to be punished, but Jesus has died on the cross, suffered on the cross. He took punishment for sin on the cross so that we don't have to take punishment ourselves in eternity. So we look forward to that day with anticipation and yet with heavy hearts and that's why we share the gospel in the meantime so that anyone so that everyone can hear and have an opportunity to turn to Christ on that day the beast and the false prophet are judged again Revelation 19 verse 17 John says then I saw And we have a symbolism of birds of prey in these two verses, giving us another facet of judgment on that day. It's a parody of the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a warning that anyone who opposes God will ultimately get what they deserve. Then verse 19, then I saw another vision of John. And the warnings continue. The beast and the kings of the world are shown as united against God. Those who might be enemies, world powers in opposition to each other, 
different groups, different politicians, different peoples, different communities opposing each other. And yet, despite all that would separate them, naturally speaking, they have one thing in common, that they oppose God. And they're shown here as united against God. And yet we're told that the beast and the false prophet, those who did evil and those who encouraged evil, encouraged people to follow, they were captured and judged. Their sentence was to be cast into the lake of fire forever. That symbolizes God's punishment as well as the fact that they can never come out from it. And their army was killed also. These verses use the familiar illustrations of the the death and the horror of war to get us an idea that all who do evil, all the forces of the evil one and all who follow their lead will be conquered by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus is victorious and he will have final victory on that day. On the one hand, this is a message of assurance that the days of evil on earth are numbered. But it's a day that we don't look forward to for people who have not trusted in him. And so in the meantime, it should spur us on to share this wonderful gospel that there's a day coming that people can, can avoid getting the justice they deserve on that day for their sins but they can instead receive the mercy of God through faith in Christ. The battle is already being waged as we read in Ephesians six, twelve, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. The war is ongoing. Christ is bringing his kingdom in and it is here to some extent when people turn to him and follow him. But on that day the war will finally be over when he comes again. On that day the dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan, however he is described, will be bound and defeated. In Revelation 20 we have two instances where John writes, Then I saw in verse 1 and in verse 4, before we have the final great white throne described, the throne of judgment in verse 11. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 10. Well, let me describe using Leo Morris's words. This brings us to one of the most difficult parts of the entire book. It's a difficult book in general, but this is one of the most difficult parts. There have been endless disputes, some of them very bitter, over the way to understand this chapter. Evangelicals have divided from one another and sometimes had, have been quite intolerant of views other than those of their own group. It's necessary to approach the chapter with humility and charity, he writes. He's speaking about how do we understand the thousand years, the millennium, that's described here in Revelation chapter 20. There are three basic views. I'll just outline them very, very quickly. You can look them up elsewhere. Premillennialists 
believe that when Christ returns, he will come before pre the millennium, before the thousand years, and that believers will be caught up to be with him. He will then reign on earth for a thousand years in primarily a physical or national sense on earth. After this, Satan will be freed for a short time to do more evil. Then the dead will be erased. And this will be unbelievers, the rest of the dead. And that will occur when they have to face the great white throne. And so believers are caught up with the Lord first and then unbelievers are left on their own for a thousand years. And then they are judged the great white throne. And yet, this view is Christ's kingdom is still something to come after that. Something to come after Christ returns. Yet we're told that Christ's kingdom is coming as people place their faith in him. Nowhere else in the Bible do we read that Christ will come and then there will be a thousand years reign before the judgment day. Instead, we read that Christ will remain in heaven until the judgment day in Acts 3, verse 20 and Hebrews 10, 12. That's a premillennial view and it's very, very popular amongst evangelicals. Probably the most popular at the moment. Although it's only been a view that's been around for 100 years or so. Postmillennialists believe that Christ will come after the thousand years. Some view that the thousand years is symbolic and others that it is a literal period of time. Postmillennialism was popular over a hundred years ago since the idea is that the whole world will become more godly and more peaceful and more and more people will respond to the gospel. Well, that was popular before World War I happened, before World War II, before many of the atrocities technological atrocities, atrocities by communist leaders as well as Western leaders at times. Instead, we see an increasing ungodliness in the world that makes this view seem impractical and is much less popular now. The third view, the amillennialist view, is a is that the millennium is not a literal period of, of a thousand years, but it symbolizes a long period of time. That's the position we hold, and that's the position that, or at least I hold, that's the position that was historically held before the Reformation and after the Reformation for 19 centuries out of 20. It's the dominant conservative evangelical view. It's the whole period from Christ's first coming to his second coming. It symbolizes the spiritual kingdom of God here and now. And when Christ comes, everyone will stand before him to be judged. Those who are believers will go immediately to be with him in the air while others will be left behind to stand on their own. And on the judgment day, both groups will be separated, the sheep from the goats. Now, it depends how you view Revelation as to how you understand this passage and what goes before it and after it. If you view Revelation as a historical sequence of 
different periods of time that follow one after the other, then this part of Revelation chapter 20 could be seen as just happening before the great white throne judgment. But the interpretation we've been having is that we're looking at different perspectives on human history, on the the period between Christ's first coming and second coming. And so we're not seeing them as connected historically in a timeline, but we're seeing them as different scenes of the same events. It's significant that Morris points out that it's a much overlooked fact, he says, that in these first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 20, there's nothing mentioned about Christ's return. It's only that when you approach Revelation from a timeline point of view that you can make the connection, but there's nothing actually in this passage that connects a thousand years with Christ's return. And so when you view it from a a viewpoint perspective, we see that Revelation 20 verses 1 to 10 is simply describing the situation that we find ourselves in from Christ's first coming to his second coming. And then in verse 11, we we see the final judgment, the great white throne where everybody has to, to stand before him. Yet we have to admit, in interpreting passages like this, we might be wrong. We might not get it right. Not everything seems to fit as neatly in understanding prophecy as we would like to think. I think we'll, even if we get it largely right, even if others get it largely right, we will all find that there will be either little or large surprises that didn't work out exactly the way we had thought. That's what happened when Jesus came the first time. The disciples were saying in Acts 1, Lord, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom? They really didn't understand. There's no reason to think that we should understand. Our track record so far is that we've never really got it right. We get it wrong. Look how many people have prophesied the, the end of the world, the, the coming of Jesus already. We tend to get it wrong. In Revelation, the number 10 is a number of completeness. And 10 cubed, 10 times 10 times 10 is a thousand. Completeness times completeness times completeness. Bearing in mind that Revelation generally speaks to us symbolically in visions, in symbolism, we can interpret that the thousand years of Satan being bound refers to the general state that Satan is in. He's not free to do all that he wants. He is bound like a lion in a zoo that is bound the walls or the fence. The lion cannot get out and maul the visitors. So Satan is bound. He cannot get out and do all the evil he wants to do. The imagery might be, again, as is so often the case in Revelation, going back to the book of Daniel. Daniel was cast into the pit where the lions were, the lion's den. And that might be an image of what 
the devil being cast into the, the bottomless pit brings to mind the, the illustration of being restricted like a dog on a leash that can only go so far he seized the dragon that old serpent who is the devil Satan and bound him in chains for a thousand years the angels threw him into the bottom the angel threw him into the bottomless pit which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished Afterward, he must be released for a little while. We don't understand fully what that means. We can have some ideas. Maybe there will be a resurgence of evil just before the Lord comes again. There certainly was a resurgence of demonic activity when Jesus first came. There were so many demons We've never read in human history of so much, so much demonic activity all in one place in such a short space of time as when Jesus came first. Maybe that's what will happen just before he comes again. We don't know. In the meantime, John sees another vision where believers are seated on thrones Believers are victorious in Christ. Even during all this time, here and now, we are victors in Christ. We have victory over sin in our own lives. And that is a precursor to our victory, our righteous living, when he comes again. They all came to, to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead didn't come back to life until the thousand years had ended. The first resurrection could be understood as the new birth where we are brought from death to life spiritually. The second death, we're told in verse 14, is eternal judgment. But that day holds no fear for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. At his return, we need not fear the second death if we have been resurrected to life already by the power of his spirit in us. When he comes, there will be the judgment day. Then I saw verse 11, and John shows us the judgment day. Throughout the Bible, there is only one judgment day spoken of. It's a theological interpretation of premillennialism to see the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne here in Revelation 20 as two separate judgment days, one for the rewards of believers and the other for the judgment of unbelievers. But arguably, those are just two descriptions of the same event because the great white throne judgment, the judgment day is when Christ will judge. So it is the judgment seat of Christ as well as being the great white throne judgment. In Acts 17, we're told that it is Christ who will judge the world. And here we seem to have the imagery of Revelation 1.14, of Jesus with white hair, with white wool, alongside the imagery of Revelation 3.4, of Christ walking in white. The great white throne judgment, white symbolizes righteousness. And it's significant in verse 12 that the dead were judged 
not by what was written in the book, singular, but what was written in the books, plural. Both unbelievers and believers will be judged. And anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. We've all sinned. All our names, everybody's name is written in the first book. And we have sinned with black marks against us. But those whose names are written in the second book, those who have trusted in Jesus and who have had their sins washed away, that cancels what's written in the first book. And anyone whose name is written in the second book does not need to fear judgment on that day. There's a single day of judgment coming. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. There's one judgment and two outcomes. Not two judgments. On that day, those who are openly evil will be condemned. But that will include also many who are religious, who think they're going to be fine on that day. Jesus teaches, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On the judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, we perform many miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. The name of Jesus is powerful, and demons will respond to the name regardless of who is using it sometimes. God does miracles, even the devil does miracles as an angel of light those are not necessarily signs that people are right with God many miracles are done which are signs that God is validating the message and the person, his messenger his messengers we thank God for miracles but they are not necessarily always a sign that the person is from God Note that Jesus says two things. Firstly, he says, I never knew you. They don't have a relationship with him. They don't know him. He doesn't know them. Second thing is, he describes them as those who continue to break God's laws. They are unrepentant. They haven't changed. They don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in them, enabling them to walk in the Spirit and produce the fruit of the Spirit. They're just sinning in a religious way. There are many people in churches and their sin is dressed up as religion. They're legalistic. They're self-righteous. They're harsh. They're ungracious. Cold towards God and cold towards other people. And sometimes they're revered in a way which just masks the sin that that they do behind closed doors. On that day, the Lord who sees everything will separate them for who they are. We don't know the hearts of people. 
Only God knows the hearts. It's very difficult for us to perfectly judge who's who. We have to do what we can. But on that day, the Lord will judge. And there will be no more room for any such people, for any such sin or evil in his new world. After all that we've read about God's harsh judgment on the judgment day, we might wonder, how can God be so harsh as to judge people on that day? How, how will he be without mercy on that day? Surely that is not the view of God that we've come to learn from the person of Jesus and his teachings in the Gospels. Surely God will forgive people on that day. Well, firstly, in the Gospels, we read harsh words from Jesus about that day. He says more about judgment and hell than any other writer, any other speaker in the whole Bible. And yes, God is compassionate. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is forgiving. But it would be wrong of us to think that we can receive his mercy and compassion on that day if we have rejected it all the while before then. Today is the day he calls us to receive his mercy, to receive his forgiveness, to trust in him, to be reconciled with him. He calls us, as Jesus said in the parable, to make an out-of-court settlement because once we get to the, the courtroom, there will be just judge justice. But he wants us to secure forgiveness before we get there. That's why the gospel is so important here and now. Now is the time when, when God has been patient with people, giving us the opportunity to turn to him. Now is when his mercy, his grace, is offered freely. If we reject it now over and over, day after day, month after month, year after year, what makes us think that we will be offered a mercy on the judgment day? The Bible doesn't tell us that that will be a day of offering mercy, simply a day of separating the righteous from the unrighteous, those who have trusted in Jesus from those who have not. And even if, even if people who want to avoid going to eternal punishment were to be offered to get into heaven, they wouldn't want to be there. While people may strenuously want to avoid being punished for their sins, just like now, when, when people are offered, come and worship the Lord on a Sunday morning, no way, they don't want to go. They'd, they would hate to be in a worship service. If they hate being in a worship service now, they will hate even more being in heaven with perfect holiness, perfect righteousness then. They will just not want to be there. Now is the time when God calls us to place our faith in him. Then will be the time for simply 
giving people what they have chosen here and now. That's why we need to share the gospel as much as we can now. Now is when people receive God's mercy. They won't be able to receive it then if they haven't already accepted it now. And that's why we praise God so much if we have already trusted in Christ. We know that we will be vindicated then. We know that nothing will separate us from God's love then. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, calls out to people to place their faith in him, to accept the forgiveness that is there on the cross. And though their sins are as red as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. He calls us to trust in the Savior who came first, that we might have forgiveness of sins, so that when we face him, At the end of the day, we will have nothing to fear. Praise God that the devil is on a leash, that God is in control. Praise God that he is bringing people out of his patience, his abundant patience. He's calling people to himself. And praise God there is a day when there will be no more evil. There'll be no more victimization. There'll be no more injustice, no more exploitation in the world that is to come. We praise God for such a wonderful gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word which comforts us and yet which also gives us such clear warning in advance. Lord, we are without excuse. We have your clear message to us. Lord, we pray that that those who are not believers, those who have not trusted from their hearts and accepted Jesus and turned to him and received the love of God, the forgiveness of sins, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, the assurance of eternal life to come. Lord, those who haven't received that yet, Lord, may they place their faith in Jesus and know all the joys of your wonderful grace out of your abundant love towards them in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen.